This is The Guardian. Israel has reacted furiously to a speech by the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, where he said this. The attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. Meanwhile, Kestama is facing a backlash within the Labour Party after he was forced to clarify his stance on the conflict. I was not saying that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel or medicines. Just how serious are the splits opening up in the Labour Party? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. We're recording this week's episode on Wednesday lunchtime, and joining me today is The Guardian's Defence and Security Editor, Dan Sabah. Dan, hello. Hi, hi. A speech by the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has ignited a diplomatic row with Israel. Antonio Guterres was critical of Hamas in his speech to the UN, saying nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets. And he said all hostages must be treated humanely and released immediately. But he went on to say this. It is important to also recognise the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Israel's envoy to the UN, Gilad Erdan, called on Guterres to resign immediately. Hamas, as the minister explained, beheaded babies, burned families, raped women, abducted kids, babies, Holocaust survivors. And the SG is blaming the victim? You are blaming Israel? This is a pure blood libel. This is a pure blood libel. And I think that the Secretary General must resign. We'll get into the wider questions that this row brings up and the consequences for domestic politics shortly. But first, Dan, I mean, this feels like a a big moment, a significant moment. Is that the case? Well, I think what it underlines is really Israel's absolute determination to to, um, exert is complete control over over Gaza territorially over the crisis uh, of the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're talking about here, not is the fallout with the UN Secretary General. It was a speech, by the way, that he made individually. He wasn't sort of representing the organisation as a whole, if you like. Uh, but also the sort of then saying to people like uh, humanitarian envoys that they won't be able to enter Gaza. Now, again, uh, uh, that that just reinforces this idea of that 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 territorial control is so important to Israel that it's prepared to, if you like, pick a fight and assert itself against any organisation in the world uh, up to and including the United Nations. I just wonder from Guterres' point of view, and he must know what um, effect those words are going to have on the Israelis. They've made very clear um, that they take any sort of discussion almost of the the broader context as as victim blaming. Do you get a sense of the relationship between Israel and the UN has been deteriorating over past days? Any particular reason why he'd say that now? I think one of the issues on the timing is that we've seen this delay. So what what had been expected was a relatively quick 
ground invasion into Gaza. That was the sort of anticipation that that might have happened perhaps even you know a week ago, several days ago. But that hasn't happened. And Israel's pursued a different uh, military strategy and has basically decided to sort of launch just hundreds, thousands of airstrikes into Gaza. Um, many people have been killed. Many Palestinians have been killed. Perhaps as many, 5,700, I think, is the uh, official death toll from the uh, Gaza Health Ministry. This, this period has become elongated and in it has come a kind of greater uncertainty and anxiety, a greater focus on the humanitarian situation inevitably, as we've not seen perhaps the kind of military action that we might have expected. So if people want to raise these kind of concerns, then 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 the period of time grows, become, becomes greater. And of course, as I emphasized earlier, Israel's desire to retain control means they're going to fight back rhetorically against anyone doing that. And if that involves with the row with the UN, so be it. Well, they can afford to do that because they know they've got the backing of, in particular, the United States, which is sort of saying very clearly, now's not the time for a ceasefire. And we've also obviously seen UN staff in Gaza coming under bombardment. Do you, I mean, Israel has said that um, it will deny a visa to uh, the unofficial Martin Griffiths. They say they want to teach the UN a lesson that they will make it harder uh, for UN personnel to, to enter Gaza. What does all of this mean for the ongoing negotiations over aid getting into Gaza, fuel reaching Gaza. You've got hospitals saying they are very much on the point of running out of fuel now, which means the total collapse of the health system, essentially. There is an incredibly acute humanitarian crisis. Um, I think incredibly acute probably understates it. Incredibly acute humanitarian crisis in the you know, unbelievably crowded sort of uh, Gaza territory, one of the most crowded places on earth. We've seen very little humanitarian aid and relief going in already. This clearly isn't going to uh, help the situation. And I suspect also what Israel probably doesn't want is it doesn't want someone like Martin Griffiths going in and making public relations points, emphasizing the, the, the humanitarian suffering, because that is not from a public, there's no sort of nice way to put this, but from a public relations point of view, then uh, if you're Israel, you're sitting there going, well, that might engender more sympathy for the for the Palestinian situation, potentially sort of visuals, or at least an account from Griffiths, who's an official who's not known for pulling his punches uh, when it comes to talking about humanitarian crises around the world. The other development in the last few days as we've seen a, a handful of hostages held in Gaza start to be released. What's what's the relationship between those releases, which Hamas says it's making on humanitarian grounds, and, and the aid negotiations? Are they essentially being used as bargaining chips? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that... Um Again, no nice way of putting this, but I think Hamas is sort of long-term, you know, I see bargaining chip, best sort of long-term weapon, if you like. Um, it, unfortunately, it's the hostages that it holds. So it looks like it's more than 200. Four have been released so far. So clearly a tiny, tiny fraction. But yes, these, the, the, the elderly, two elderly Americans that released, this was done, a negotiation involving Qatar, which is an, an interlocutor uh, with Hamas, uh, was very much and very explicitly done as a sort of, um, as a negotiation gesture, as a goodwill gesture. And of course, if another the reason sort of perhaps uh, that's been holding Israel back potentially from this ground invasion that we all have expected and we probably all still expect um, is the risk of, of hostages being killed. Well, clearly if you're Hamas, you, you you want to sort of string out the valley of those hostages, unfortunately, for as long as you possibly can. And it ramps up the pressure inside Israel as well, doesn't it? I mean, you have obviously that the families of the hostages will be incredibly reluctant to see ground invasion while their, their loved ones are still there. You know, we've seen... I guess increasing anger within Israel about the, about the plight of the hostages, the sort of very poignant sight of a Shabbat table being laid for the 200 people who, who aren't here to sit at it. You still, I mean, it sounds to me like you still get the sense that the ground invasion is pretty much inevitable, that it's that the Israelis aren't drawing away from that. Do you see any circumstances in which 
doesn't happen. It's possible it doesn't happen. I think it would be very surprising. I think when something like this happens, a sort of unexpected attack by Hamas fighters, what is it, I think 1,400 Israelis killed, there's this incredibly strong political desire to do something to exact some kind of retribution, some sort of, that there needs to be some sort of response. And it's, it's very easy to see how you get a kind of political momentum behind a ground invasion. Of course, an awful lot of troops have been, the, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force Reservists have been called up, some 300,000. We're seeing a massing of troops at the border. All the signs are, all the physical signs are that something's going to happen at some point. Where the doubts come in, and, and some of these are clearly been transmitted by the Americans, who are starting to say things like, and we're seeing briefing and some of this in the US press, what are your objectives here? What is the kind of once you invade somewhere you can say all you like that you only mean to for it to be short and brief but but military operations have a habit of lasting far longer than you expect you know what is the goal is the goal to sort of you know invade with tanks and soldiers and try and hold the ground for a long time Hamas is ready for this there's a whole dense network of tunnels under Gaza they're ready for this kind of guerrilla war the Israelis know this Hamas knows this so are they ready for this sort of long you know long potentially grueling conflict which sort of sat role on both sides and the americans are sort of saying well what are you what are you trying to achieve what is you, have you've got strategy to actually root out hamas what does what does that look like are you ready for are you ready for tunnel war i think is one of the concerns that's been raised I, I think these are the reasons to be cautious but unfortunately and i wish i could say otherwise i struggle to see a dynamic where israel doesn't go in and pursue some kind of um doesn't try and occupy at least some of the ground in gaza the the area it's earmarked for evacuation the northern half of the territory because if it doesn't do so, it might be a difficult thing politically for you know Netanyahu and this sort of unity government to kind of sell to the sell sell to the broader population. Also, it would have to have some. I mean, it's not just about retribution. It would have to have some other guarantee of security for its citizens. You would have to Netanyahu would have to have another strategy that says this is how we're going to prevent this ever happening again. And it's not entirely clear at the moment what else that. Could Clearly, and the, yes, exactly, precisely so. And the, the, the clear problem with an insurgency is that in your efforts to tackle it, you repress so bloodily that you kind of create a new generation of terrorists, you alienate more people. And we're not talking about, as we all know, we're not talking about, you know, a small population. We're talking about 2.3 million people in Gaza. And I think one of the, the questions the Americans are asking is, is that, is there a strategy which brings about long-term security here? Or is there a strategy in which you occupy, it feels good, it gradually and it gradually turns bad. In other words, is it like, and I think Biden's talked about this, is it, is it, it, are you getting in a situation like the US got into in Afghanistan or, of course, in Iraq, where it feels like you can go in and hold the ground and actually you get embroiled in a long, you know, uh, horrible, nasty, low intensity war, which degrades you and damages your reputation internationally. Throughout this latest conflict, there have been fears of a, of a second front potentially opening up with Hezbollah in Lebanon and um, beyond that with its sponsors in Iran. Where do you think we are on that? Because there have been moments over the last couple of weeks where you felt that everyone was really holding their breath. Do you feel the chances of Iran getting involved have receded at all? I think Iran... <laughs> I think Iran itself uh, would would be very very unlikely to want to get directly involved and certainly directly involved in a war with Israel, a, um, a war which, although Iran has a much larger population, um, Israel is is very well resourced militarily, and Iran knows that Israel could strike it quite uh, quite dangerously, and and it's really unclear what what powers like the what the, what the U.S. would do in such a situation. But I would take a step back and calm down a bit. 
Iran's general strategy is Iran is definitely a, is clearly an antagonist to the to the US to Israel to the, the West. It's uh, it's a supporter of Hamas and of course Hezbollah uh, to the north in, in in Lebanon. And as generally and traditionally wants to work through proxies. Iran's general strategy is to make trouble, to push things to the absolute limit, to sort of to 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 poke, to try and get away with things, um, and not get to the point where there's any kind of risk to itself. So if you look back, for example, at the whole crisis around um, tankers in the Persian Gulf of about ooh, three years ago. It was, again, it was all demonstrative. It was designed to show. It was sort of uh, what people call sort of grey zone activity, activity just above the threshold of war, designed to intimidate, make a point, show that we're around, show that they're troublemakers. And so you could see Iran trying to encourage its proxies um, to act and kind of fight a, sort of, to some extent, a two-front war. I do see that as possible. I see it as incredibly unlikely that Iran will want to, of itself, get involved in a conflict because although it's got the capability to cause trouble, it probably doesn't have the capability to win a uh, to conflict. Win. Talking of ways in which um, Iran might poke and prod, I mean, it seems almost crass to talk about the economic implications of this conflict, given the humanitarian implications of this conflict. But you know, we've seen from Ukraine how you know an oil price shock then impacts on Western economies back home, impacts on Western political resolve back home as well. The oil price has already gone up as a result of um, the current conflict. There is potential, I suppose, for Iran escalating things in the Straits of Hormuz and the oil price is going through the roof. Should we be thinking about all of those potential aspects to this conflict? Yes, I think there is certainly a possibility of uh, you know, an economic shock or something similar. And, and there are things um, as, as other regional actors sort of get involved, yeah, that could have potentially sort of serious implications. And of course, we're just getting over um, a big inflationary shock. And we just have been just, just about sort of coming down from the cliff of 10%, 10 inflation in the UK and, and similar such figures in other Western economies. So the thought of going back there is not attractive. But for some actors, an unstable world is an attractive world, and uh, it's not attractive for us in the West, and 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 shouldn't be attractive for rational people. But you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, and has certainly got uh, an appetite for seeing an unstable world. And I think uh, Iran likes the idea of instability. You know, sure, it might not want to be in a victim of direct military threat, targeted by a direct military threat, but it certainly quite likes the idea of an unstable world that makes like makes like difficult for the US and the and the West more generally. Thanks very much for your time, Dan. We're going to let you go now. Um, but when we come back, we will be talking about how this issue is dividing the Labour Party. Mit Asana erhalten Sie einen Überblick über alle Details an einem zentralen Ort, damit Sie und Ihr Team sich auf die wirklich wichtigen Arbeiten und Ziele konzentrieren können. Jetzt kostenlos unter asana.com testen. 
Um, whereas the Telegraph talks about UN defense of Hamas. And I thought, what on earth did this guy say? So I went and looked at the actual speech. And there is no relation, as far as I can see, between the two. Guterres's speech starts with him condemning the attacks on Israelis, as I think any, almost anyone would, and says there can be no justification for that. He also calls for the peaceful return of the hostages. Um, it's a short speech. It doesn't go on for very long. And the the other big thing that um, he, he the big point he makes is there should be a ceasefire or else the UN can't really continue to serve up aid. Those other points just go completely missing. And what it becomes uh, in, in, in our papers and politicians who are on the right, it, it's become about the UN actively taking the side of Hamas, which is clearly not what he said. And you would need to be looking with a distinct squint at his speech to arrive at that conclusion. It's interesting because we obviously played both parts on, on this podcast for a reason. And I think words about events not happening in a, in a vacuum jumped out because they're something that hasn't been said that often during this conflict so far by people in leadership positions, even though in a way, it's a statement of the obvious, absolutely everything in the Middle East happens, you know, in the context of absolutely everything that has happened before. I mean, it's hard to think of a region of the world where sort of thousands of years of history don't weigh on people so heavily. I and mean, you can't understand the Israeli reaction without understanding, you know, that this war happens in the shadow of the Yom Kippur War or in the Lebanon War. You can't understand the Palestinian reaction without understanding, you know, the long context of Palestinian suffering. Everything happens within a context. And yet, to say that is is treated as victim blaming or as suggesting that somehow you know it's Israel's fault that this happened or that it's the victims themselves fault that, that this happened to them and so we haven't you know we haven't kind of heard someone say straight up before in a position of, of leadership and authority that as he said these things don't happen in a vacuum that there is a broader context and I felt hearing it when I was listening to I actually heard the words on the radio first and thought there'll be a lot of people who wanted to hear that said. To put something in context is not to diminish it, nor is it to to blame the person to whom it's happened. And to to apply analysis, I would say, is your first step towards trying to actively help improve a situation. So we're in a situation, as as I think you were discussing with Dan, where we're heading towards war, and it is a case of whose side you're on. Are you with us or you uh, uh, are you against us? And, you know, Gabby, before talking to you, I was just looking at I was looking at the march against the war with Iraq in 2003, a million people on that march. And I was looking at how it was reported. And William Rees Mogg wrote a column for The Times in which he talked about standing outside a gentleman's club in Pall Mall, watching the marches go past. He wasn't very impressed with their outfits said they looked like they were going off to a football march, and then described them as Saddam's useful idiots. The Telegraph's Barbara Mill said they were attacking America, Israel and free enterprise. Richard Littlejohn said that they were stuck in a student union time warp. 20 years on, Iraq it remains one of the biggest debacles in post-war history. The people on that march, scruffily dressed though they, they may have been, were completely right. Their detractors were wrong. And yet, in 2003, just as, as now, we're in a situation where there are lines that are drawn. And if you object or you doubt or you simply want more evidence, you are on, you are little more than traitors. And that's an incredibly dangerous um, 
position be. Do you really feel that that's the case, that, that debate here or the things ordinary civilians, not, you know, UN diplomats, but things that ordinary mm. people might mm. want to say about suffering in Gaza or about the broader context of this war or anything. Do you really feel that's suppressed to that point now? I don't think it's about suppression. It's about le- delegitimizing the people making that argument. Y- you will have seen pieces in uh, across the press, the cry and the protesters, focusing on what some people said on a separate march about jihad. I wouldn't defend that. That's completely wrong. Um, nor would I defend anyone who would seek to minimise the atrocities visited on 7th of October by Hamas. Yet, it, it's also very clear to me, you need a ceasefire in Gaza. And, and, and that is something that neither Joe Biden, nor Rishi Sunak, nor Keir Starmer, nor anyone in Western Europe is calling for. I mean, how we can have arrived at that situation, I don't know. One of the things that really struck me, actually, and, 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 and strikes me repeatedly about the, the, the level of the protest, the nature of the protest uh, on the Palestinian side, is how young the people are. So these aren't Corbynistas, Trotskyists, Muslim jihadis. You're talking about 16, 17-year-olds who are waving flags and saying, Starma, Starma, shame on you, or Rishi Sunak, you support genocide. This is a, a, a generation of people who are becoming politicised in just the same way, I would say, as a generation of young people, often from ethnic minority backgrounds, were politicised in 2003. And for the press not to exam- examine that with any curiosity, not to think about what that might mean, not to think about who this generation are, where they're getting their news from, all of these interesting questions, but just to seek to vilify them, I think is completely, well, it's not only wrong, it's also incredibly short term. Because how are you going to analyse, how are you going to understand this situation in a year's time, two years time? Where they're getting their news from is an interesting question, I think, mm. just for us as journalists, but for understanding, you know, that, that generation of protesters, because it's probably not. I mean, I would love to think it's from the Guardian, um, but it might. It might be. I have more good news TikTok. for you, Gabby. I have good, very good news good. for you. I, I was speaking to a sixteen-year-old girl in Luton, and I asked her just this question, uh, and she said, "Well, I always used to watch the BBC, but on on Palestine, I think they've been very static and robotic and very driven by statistics. I do look at the Guardian, but what she tends to look at is." Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, WhatsApp. Now, the, the girl I was speaking to, Aisha, very, very smart. But what was so interesting was that she she was drawing links between what she saw in Palestine and Black Lives Matter, decolonization. She was talking about Edward Colston's statue in Bristol. She was able to draw these connections across all of these things. And to her, these various protests and causes stood side by side and she felt that that they were being misrepresented by what she called the mainstream media. It's been very emotive as well a lot of the footage that you would see on social media you see things that imagery that wouldn't be used in a newspaper. Grotesque yeah. You know really upsetting really um, emotionally disturbing content from both sides you know from from the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side you both pumping out these images which are very galvanizing. Yeah. I remember in 2003 that the war in Iraq happened um, for, for, for British people. It happened on your television, in your living room at 10 o'clock at night when you turned on the news and after half an hour it was finished. And now we're dealing with a generation for whom the war 
in Gaza is happening 24-7 in their hands and they they get it via WhatsApp messages from their friends. The level of vicarious trauma that must give someone who's seeing this happen on their phone is, I think, very difficult to comprehend for someone of my age, but it also really troubles me. It has a very immediate effect. Coming back, I mean, Keir Starmer has told Labour MPs not to go on pro-Palestine protests um, amid, presumably, because he doesn't want them to be photographed in connection with some of the images, some of the slogans we've seen, or for whatever reason. But that's obviously come amid growing tensions in the Labour Party over his position on the conflict. It seems things really seem to have started with an interview he gave to LBC uh, a few days after the October 7th attack when he was asked about how far Israel was entitled to go in response. And he said this. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, And Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power? Cutting off water? I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Several days later, Starmer insisted, however, that wasn't what he meant. Well, I welcome this question because I know that that LBC clip has been widely shared and caused real concern and distress in some Muslim communities. So let me be clear about what I was saying and what I wasn't saying. I was saying Israel had the right to self-defence. And when I said that right, it was that right to self-defence. I was not saying that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel or medicines. Aditya, do you buy that explanation? No. And I, I, I've yet to meet the person who does. <laughs> Don't of course not. He said one thing on tape. It was it it was shared widely, <laughs> seemingly by hundreds of thousands of people um, on on social media and across WhatsApp. And then he denies it. He said it. I, I mean, I think the technical term for that is gaslighting, isn't it? I think I could more easily have bought the idea that it was because people do misspeak in interviews. People do the interviewers interrupting. You're still finishing your last point. You don't kind of, you know, you screw it up. It happens. It's just that Emily Thornbury was on Newsnight. The same day, you know, making, holding to a very similar line, which made you, which um, one sort of felt that perhaps as a trained lawyer might not have been her preferred line on international law. And that made it feel like "Mm, this was a party line. The party line was just to say over and over again, Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel had a right to defend itself and not get into any further, you know, thing than that. So I kind of understand. I mean, there's been obviously huge unrest about this in the Labour Party. Over 20 councillors have resigned in protest. That unrest seems to be spreading to MPs upwards of, I think, upwards of 35 at the time we're talking, have signed an early day motion calling for a ceasefire. And it's not just what you might call um, the usual suspects. You have people like Stephen Timms in that mix, Liam Byrne, who were ministers under Blair and Brown. And as we speak on Wednesday afternoon, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner are obviously preparing for a potentially tricky meeting with the PLP, at which you um, might assume some difficult questions are going to be asked. How serious do you think this is for Starmer. How serious a breach of trust do you think it is? I think it raises some very serious questions about Starmer, um, Starmer's judgment, and it raises some very serious questions about his control over uh, his own party or his understanding of his own party. So just to go from the top, Starmer and Thornbury are human rights lawyers by training. And for them to turn, a, uh, for apparently to turn a blind eye to human rights violations uh, is unconscionable. It would be really easy to think that that pro-Palestinian sympathy within among the Labour membership was all down to to lefties and it was all people who were holdovers from the Corbyn regime. 
If you look at a poll done by the Jewish Chronicle from a couple of years ago, it asked two questions which have kind of stuck with me. One was, who do you think's better, Keir Starmer or Jeremy Corbyn? And 61% of Labour members who responded said Keir Starmer. And then it said, do you support boycotts of Israel? And 61% said yes. So the idea that everyone who's worried about about bombed Gazan babies or Gazan casualties, Gazan killings is somehow from the from the from extremist fringes of politics. It's for the birds. Clearly, Keir Starmer feels that in order to distance himself as far as possible from the Corbyn years and any suggestion of anti-Semitism and any suggestion of being hostile to Israel, that he has to almost bend over backwards to to take a pro-Israeli point of view. And yet that hasn't you can you can feel his position shifting a bit over the last couple of weeks, but maybe it hasn't it's it's shifted kind of quite awkwardly and quite jerkily. It hasn't made that transition naturally as public opinion has, you know, there's a definite difference between what you can say perhaps two weeks after the attacks and what you say 24 hours after the attacks. Um, and there are some things that you might not say in the aftermath of a terrible event that you might, after a degree of time has passed, say. But you don't get the feeling that, that Starmer has kind of moved naturally with that flow. It's all been a bit awkward. I, I think it's absolutely understandable that you, you you would say something different in the immediate hours after the kind of atrocities that we saw on October 7th. And you would say something different a little later. However, you do have to remember that Israel's um, retaliation for what Hamas did, to, you know, began within hours. So there is a there is a responsibility upon political leaders to to respond to that and to to to, to call for de-escalation very early. I, I saw a YouGov poll uh, from a few days ago which showed that three out of four Britons want an immediate ceasefire. Um, polling in America suggests that the majority of Americans also want an immediate ceasefire. It is really striking to me that that position has had received hardly any ventilation. So I slightly feel that polling, that ceasefire is one of those questions where polling is not that useful an instrument in a way, because if you ask most people, do you think there should be a ceasefire in this war or not? I mean, like, who's going to vote for bombing at that point? Who's Everybody wants the killing to stop. No, and that's not true. Though, is it? The Daily Mail, the Daily extent. Telegraph, no, no, the no. Times. But if you ask most, but if you ask a punter in the street, you're not asking the Times at this point. Yeah, you're asking you, me, my mum. You know, do you want? Are you in favour of war on everyone constantly being bombed and killed, or are you in favour of not? You know, I would be in favour of not at that point. If you're asking in this particular conflict, what is the option? The non-military strategy. What is the option? Bearing in mind that the Israelis feel that to to have a ceasefire now would infer that they have no that they simply have to sit back and take the fact that thousands of people are killed, um, that they have no option to guarantee their own security. It's a more complicated question than do you want a ceasefire or not want a ceasefire? Well everyone wants a ceasefire, but but ceasefire for what? What's you, the next you, thing? You say everyone wants a ceasefire. I've not heard an NMP from either the two main parties call for a, a ceasefire in public yet. Um it's also notable that aid organisations such as Oxfam have called for a ceasefire. The UN's called for a ceasefire simply so we can get aid in, right? And, and none of this finds any ventilation or representation anywhere. I, I would say ceasefire, you're right to say at one level, ceasefire is, sim is simply the most basic universal thing that you, you would call for. What happens 
between Israel and Gaza. And what on earth happens with Gaza, given how levelled it's been over the past three weeks? You know, houses destroyed, hospitals destroyed, uh, people, dis you know, over a million people displaced. What on earth happens now is surely what you would think serious, would be serious politicians on both sides of the divide in Britain would be turning their minds to. I've not seen any ventilation. And that yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I suppose there's been engagement on the US side with the question of the aftermath of the war, but much, much less so here. Coming back um, to some of those things you, you mentioned, obviously, uh, Starmer also visited the South Wales Islamic Centre this week, where he was obviously must have been expecting to be asked um, some difficult questions about his position on the bombardment, about, you know, the broader kind of political question. But it kind of, it seems to have all gone horribly wrong almost after the visit rather than during it because he sent out this tweet saying that he was grateful to hear from the Muslim community, but also that I repeated our calls for all hostages to be released, more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza for the water and power to be switched back on, renewed focus on the two-state solution and so on. It was almost the tone of that tweet more than anything that which made it sound as if he'd either as if he couldn't say, I've been to a Muslim centre without simultaneously saying, but here's all the things that I just want to say um, in support of Israel, or, or as if he'd kind of gone there and somehow lectured British Muslims about Hamas rather than listening to what they had to <laughs> it's, it, say to him. It, it was ridiculous, it's just awful. right? It was ridiculous. I mean, what on earth are you doing going to South Wales and saying all all hostages must be released? I mean, which hostages? The ones from Murphy Tidville, Blinow Gwent, Swansea? They must all now be released. I, it is a nonsense thing to, to have done. Were I an enterprising lobby reporter, I might be tempted to ring round some mosques, such as in Oxford, and Luton and elsewhere and find out where Keir Starmer's team, where else Keir Starmer's team tried to get him into. Because I, I, I suspect that South Wales was not his first point, port of call and that they'd actually been trying to get him into somewhere before and, and the answer had come back, no, you can't. There was a, a meeting of, council, of Labour Council leaders with Sue Gray and David Lammy in the leader's office a week or so ago at which it wasn't London Labour Council leaders who really kicked off about what Keir Starmer said. It was um, council leaders from the Red Wall who, who've got lots and lots of Muslim voters. Liam Byrne is the MP for a seat with, I think, something like 60% plus Muslim voters. Um, and it's notable, if you look at his Twitter feed, he's tweeting calls for a ceasefire. So people are either through, through their own conscience or their own um, respect for, 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 for what may happen to them at the next election are, are, are starting to, to back away from the leadership's own position on this. I suspect that Keir Starmer will end up with no choice but to follow those who want a ceasefire, but it will happen much later down the line and it will make him look more ridiculous when he does so. Do you think there is long-lasting damage or a breach of faith within the Labour Party over this? Or do you think by the time the next election rolls around, it will have retreated into corner of people's memories? The problem is, is really this. In politics, you have, to, you have to make sure that you're including people, you're including voters. And if you don't, if you say, actually, these people are beyond the pale, they're outsiders, they're extremists, then you leave them with no option apart from to head towards the extremes. And we've been through decades of this happening since the war on terror, the Prevent Programme, Cameron's various blunderings around the issue of multiculturalism, that apparently there are certain people who just aren't meant to be in British liberal democracy. The results of that, I think, never look good for 
the political mainstream. They end up creating the very problem that they warn us about. They end up creating extremism by confining people to extremes. The point that the, that I I really take away from from the past few weeks is that the Labour Party, which for so long has taken ethnic minority votes and the Muslim vote in particular for granted, can't really count on that anymore because there is a generation. You know, don't let's not forget ethnic minorities in this country tend to be younger. They tend to vote towards the left. Will people forget? I, I mean, I, I'm not a clairvoyant. I, I, I can't tell. But you've seen in the Red Wall, you've seen voters who've just decided to sit at home and not vote for Gordon Brown or Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and you may well see among ethnic minority voters now, people who don't want to vote for Labour, you know, they just sit at home. doesn't mean they'll vote for Rishi Sunak or the Greens or anyone. It just may mean they just like, don't come out. So they can't be taken for granted. Aditya, thanks very much for joining us. Goodbye. Thanks, Gabby. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review. Maybe even a nice one. But while you're here, I want to talk to you about Guardian Jobs. Guardian Jobs connects you with like-minded people building rewarding careers founded on shared values. When values align, great things happen. And that's especially true in the world of work. Guardian Jobs has lots of quality roles and we specialise in education, charity, green and government jobs. Search Guardian Jobs to find your next role. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 